Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Perth Toll, founder of Life and Liberty Indexes and the creator of the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets Index, ETF FRDM. In this episode, we discuss Perth's journey, starting with her childhood in China, where we discuss how freedom, or the lack thereof, shaped her views at an early age. This interview has a lot of serendipitous moments that I enjoyed, and one of them is about her father and how she reconnected with him later in life, and how that changed her path away from law school and directed it to Hong Kong. And it was this time in Asia that fostered a real interest in investments and the financial markets. And the other moment we discuss is a very lucky flight that put her face-to-face with the CEO that changed the course of her life and also this ETF product. I enjoyed learning about the creation of the Freedom ETF, the components that are viewed to construct the portfolio from the civil freedom components, the political and also the economic freedom variables. Super interesting to unpack that. I'm inspired by Perth's ambition and also her fearless approach to create a financial product that focuses on the greater good. It's certainly not an easy task to take on when you're screening out various countries based on their freedom characteristics. And as she said, that's her grand design, and I believe it's a remarkable one. Please enjoy this interview with the unique Perth Toll. Hi, Perth. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining. And a big thank you to our mutual friend, Jason Buck, who suggested we connect recently. But then I also want to thank Adam Collins, who shared my show with you almost two years ago, which is so kind of him because that's the early fan days of Growth From Failure. But at the time, you were launching the big business that you're doing now, which is creating the Life and Liberty Indices back in 2019, which is incredible. And I want to talk about that because it has so many things to unpack, whether it's emerging markets, you had mentioned that it's human and economic freedom metrics, which I have a lot of investing questions with that because you're taking on one of the biggest projects and challenges. So you've got asset management, you've got ETFs, you've got geopolitics, and then you throw in a small word in there called freedom. And so (laughs) there's a lot to ask you about. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. First, I like to rewind everyone's highlight reel that comes on the show, because as much as I really want to get into the index and how amazing it is too, one thing I've heard you say quite a bit is you saw the difference that freedom made, not only in your own life, but also markets in the US and China. And so I was hoping to start there in terms of where you grew up and what your childhood was like in China. Sure. So I grew up in both China and the US. I came to the US from China just before my ninth birthday. So like three days before my ninth birthday. And my childhood in China was during a time when China was very early stage beginning to open up in the 80s. And my first memory, I think, is I think I was four or five. And I found a book in my grandfather's library 
the beginning of the book was about two people in a garden. And then my grandmother found out that I had that book and got super mad at him, said we were all going to get in trouble. And then I never saw the book again. So <laughs> that was my first experience with censorship. And I remember there were times when adults would say things at home. My grandmother in her heart hated Mao because she lost a son during the Cultural Revolution because all the kids were sent to communes and they were away from hospitals and her son my dad's brother was bit by a snake at 19 years old. And because they weren't close enough to any hospitals, he died. So she hates him. And she said very bad things about him at home. But I was always told not to repeat that outside, just in case. There was a time when I visited. This is after I've moved to the States. 10 years later, I visited another set of grandparents. And I wanted to visit some underground churches in China because I was curious. And I was told not to do that because I could be followed. Those are some of my experiences. I had a friend who we called Maggie, but had no name, no official records, no birth certificate, school records, or social security because she was born the second child and her parents register her brother for school and for existence, for registration, basically. So the one child policy did actually have a big impact on me as well. We'd mentioned this before, but you moved to the States the same age as my son now, who was eight. And I can't even imagine... At that moment, you're in third and fourth grade, how impressionable that is in terms of wanting to look at underground churches and having that curiosity. But literally, your parents and elders telling you, nope, don't do it. Don't follow that rabbit hole because that's just literally not allowed. I can't even imagine. Then you go to the States. What was that like? What's always interesting is when people move, there's always this lasting impression. But I get a sense that you weren't so interested in markets back then and you weren't really interested in investing. But I'm curious how that path started. So you went to the States and what was that experience for you like? So when I came to the States, I immediately loved it. Freedom, even a child can feel in the air. There's just an openness and a transparency here that felt different. And of course, the schools were much easier. So I like that too. Because <laughs> in China, you had to go to school. I think it was six days a week, very long hours, a lot of homework. Teachers weren't that nice to you. Here, I remember I was in third grade and all the teachers would give you a hug. And I was like, the teachers hug you here. <laughs> and of course, they had ESL and all these programs to support people like myself who were coming from another country and didn't know the language. My homeroom teacher in third grade put up signs all over the classroom for me of what everything was in English. So it'd be like phone, blackboard, teacher, desk, and there would be signs everywhere. So I felt very welcomed here. How kind. And so one question I always like to ask people is how they chose the college they went to and why. And what ends up happening is people said, oh, I didn't know anything in college. And whatever your major was dictates your professional path afterwards. But I always like to hear that because it seems to be the catalyst to a lot of people's professional paths. And so how did you choose the college you went to? Yeah, I went to Trinity in San Antonio because they gave me the most money. I actually had applied to a lot of colleges, like a typical Asian daughter of a tiger mom. My mom was a tiger mom only about college. She didn't care about anything else. So the only things she was a tiger mom about was ACT class and college applications. The rest of the time, she was a single mom. She was everywhere. I didn't really even know where she was. Half the time, she didn't know where I was half the time. But when it came to college, that was serious. And so I believe I applied to like 18 colleges, got into about half of them. I was leaning toward Claremont McKenna in California, Boston University on the East Coast, other Texas colleges like UT Austin, 
but Trinity was by far the biggest scholarship. So that is where I went. <laughs> my college was dictated by how many people would give me the most Pell Grants and scholarships. And so that sounds about right. And so did you know back then that you were focused on business and investing and that was your passion? Or how did you choose the major that everyone is so focused on in college? I didn't know. In fact, halfway through college, I thought I was going to go into advertising on the art direction side. And Business classes, economics, finance always came easily to me. My dad was in finance, but I didn't know him growing up. So I didn't really know that. And then junior year, summer, I went to Art Center in Pasadena to do graphic design and advertising. And I loved it. And then senior year, when I came back to finish the finance degree, 9-11 happened. And everybody started cutting their advertising and marketing budgets. Being the pragmatist that I was, I went back to finishing my finance degree and actually thought I was going to go to law school after that, like everyone who doesn't know what they're going to do after college. And so what was that first job after college? After college, I worked at a commercial real estate company in Dallas, applied to law schools, got into SMU law for the following year. The summer before going to law school, I went on a couple of mission trips with the high schoolers at our church in Dallas. And me and the guy counselors afterwards went up to San Francisco. The mission trips were in Tijuana. LA area. And then we went up to San Francisco afterwards to visit friends. And I also had my dad who wasn't around growing up. I had his address memorized and I went and found him at his house in Danville when I was 23. This is right before I was about to start law school at SMU again, because of the biggest scholarship. So I found my dad 15 minutes into the conversation with him. He said, you don't want to go to law school, come to Hong Kong and live with me in my heart. As soon as he said that, I was already there. <laughs> so rewinding a little bit, because we haven't touched on this, but you were raised by a single mom then. What was the background with your dad that you found him and discovered him at the age of 23? So I was born in China. My dad came to the U.S. when I was one. My mom came when I was four. I lived with my grandparents until I came when I was around nine. My parents in the U.S. got divorced when I was seven. And so by the time I came here, my mom was already a single parent and I was living with her. My dad at the time lived in San Francisco, and then he ended up remarrying and moving to Hong Kong as an expat with his wife, my stepmom, who was awesome. And, and we're very close. That's why I didn't know my dad. He didn't keep in touch or anything like that. The only time he contacted me during that time after he moved to Hong Kong was he came through Dallas on a business trip one time. I believe I was about 14 and I saw him for dinner and that's it. And I still remember he gave me a box of Godiva chocolate. It was around Christmas time or my birthday or something. I don't know what it was, the occasion. And I kept the box, you know, because that was my dad and I always wanted him around. So yeah. <laughs> what a literal sweet association. But here's your dad, who you didn't have much of a relationship with at all, saying, oh, by the way, forgo law school, let's go to Hong Kong, which I would take that trade as well. But how did that happen? Did you have any fear? Did you have any interest in Hong Kong? How did that come about? Why Hong Kong? Before then, absolutely never thought about doing that. But when he said it, I was already there. And of course, I made him work for it and try to convince me for like a month, but I already knew I was going. So I just went to SMU and I said, hey, can I defer? And they said no. And I said, okay, well, see ya. <laughs> so I went to Hong Kong. It's actually not a very good decision in the end now that I think about it, because I, I didn't really consult any of my friends or people that I normally consult with on decisions like this. It was just something that I wanted to do. And I, and I went and I did a lot of pretty crazy things when I was there. And when you're young and 23 in a city like Hong Kong, which is like New York on speed times 100, you tend to get into a little bit of trouble. And I think I did. But also the good thing that came out of it was we traveled a lot to Beijing and Shanghai. And I realized the difference that growing up in America and the difference that freedom made in my life and also in 
these various markets, but I also got interested in finance from my time in Hong Kong because all of my friends worked in finance and I had a finance degree, but before Hong Kong, I had never been interested in actually working in it. And when I came back to the States, I had a lot more direction as far as my finance career and started working at Fidelity as a result of that. So your interest then started in Hong Kong. What were you doing there, if not working at Fidelity yet, but what was your first job in wealth management or asset management? My first job in wealth management was at Fidelity. I did apply for some, my dad was an investment banker and he wanted me to do investment banking. And I did apply for some investment banking jobs, but every single one of them told me, hey, you should be a private banker, which is personal wealth or what we call here in the States, financial advisor. And that's what I did when I worked at Fidelity. And so fast forward, so you are now in the States and this is your first entrance to asset management. You had mentioned your first job was at Fidelity. What were you focused on there? Well, I started with Fidelity in the phone sites, actually. So when you called 1-800-Fidelity, that was me. That was my first job at Fidelity. It's a great training ground and you get the most off the wall questions. Basically, you learn everything. And the training program was pretty rigorous. I believe it was 10 weeks or so. You're in a class with all the new hires. So there's like 30 of you. And you just basically live and breathe the thing and you're working at the same time. And so that was my most entry-level thing that I did at Fidelity. And then I believe six months later, I was promoted to investments where we were advising beginner clients on what they should do with their investments. So it started entry level. And then eventually, by the time I left, I had been a financial advisor in their branches for about 10 years. And that's including the time that I was gone for maternity leave. So I ended up in the branches in LA and Houston throughout my tenure there. As a financial advisor, did you know then, and that was the inception to creating an ETF about this? Or what was the experience like? And when did you know then, hey, there's a need in the market for this type of ETF? There's literally nothing out there. I'm going to create one. I had a Russian client who said, I don't want to invest in Russia because that's like funding terrorism. I had a lot of clients that wanted to invest in China and had no idea what was actually going on over there. And then I had a lot of clients who were also from the Middle East and didn't want to invest in their home countries. So I did have clients that solidified the thesis for an emerging markets type of product that didn't have all of these autocracies. But really, the idea didn't solidify until after I left Fidelity on maternity leave. And when I was gone for about two years, that's when I had time to really think about this. And I wanted to start the company at that time, but I chickened out because Fidelity was such a cushy place. I loved my clients. I loved my boss. I loved my branch. Like I loved my assistant. I just loved everything about it. And it was very difficult to leave. So I did go back when I moved to Houston into a Houston branch here. That was an extremely difficult decision when I finally decided to leave Fidelity. At the time, the decision was made easier because my child was young and I wanted to stay home with her. So when she started going to school is when I started being more full-time on life and liberty. You had mentioned that you had this aha moment when your daughter was younger to create this. I have children. I didn't have this moment at all of (laughs) this idea, let alone bandwidth to do. So here you are saying, okay, here's the need in the market. Let's focus on emerging markets. Let's focus on freedom metrics. How did you start the business? I would say that's not an aha moment. It's a process. All I've ever seen is the next step. And that includes today. So you just basically do the only thing you can do next. And in the beginning, the first thing was we had to have quantitative metrics to have an index-based strategy. And so I, with some of my CFA friends, developed a quantified human freedom metric system. So it would quantify qualified human freedom data. So there's a lot of qualified human freedom data out there, like 
US Department of State reports and things like that. But we needed it to be quantified. So we created a system called the HRQ, which would quantify all of those data points from those reports. And once we created that, we put a provisional patent on it. And then I started trying to score the countries using that system. One of the data points in that system was the Economic Freedom of the World Index and data set by Fraser Institute in Canada. When I went to their website, I saw that they also now had a human freedom index and data set. Human freedom meaning the combination of personal and economic freedoms, which is what my HRQ data set would do. So I called my contact there and I was like, hey, Fred, his name's Fred, what is this? And we compared notes and their system was almost identical to our system. So I said, Fred, can I just use yours? Because you guys have way better resources than I do as one person here. It would save me five months out of the year of scoring countries. And it would give me third-party objectivity, which I needed for a product. So he said, yes. And so we've been using their system ever since. And it's done through Cato and Fraser. It's a combination. And they use a hundred different think tanks data. And I meet with these guys every year. I'm about to go to the meeting this week, actually, to meet with the network of think tanks and see what changes they have and what they're looking to do next. So that was the next thing. And then we had to find someone to calculate the index. We use Selective out of Germany. And then eventually I had to find someone to actually launch the product, which we now use Alpha Architect. But that was probably the longest process. It probably took me a couple of years. So yeah, always just doing the next thing. And I wish I had done it sooner in my life, but I'm glad that it happened the time that it did because I had that financial base from my time at Fidelity to be able to give this the runway that it needed to launch. For the listeners who don't really know much about emerging markets or ETFs, can you describe both the Freedom ETF, but then also taking a step back, what the Life and Liberty Index program is? Yeah. So first of all, international stocks are divided into three classifications, developed market, emerging market, and frontier market. Developed markets are like US, Canada, Australia, UK, the really big and open, transparent, tradable markets. Emerging markets are the ones that are becoming developed over time. So bigger emerging markets are like China, Russia, Brazil, India. These are what you think of as emerging markets. Now, emerging markets are also rife with autocracies. So China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia are in the top 10 of most emerging markets funds and indexes. And China usually takes up about 35 to 40% alone. So That's a huge concentration risk in one country. And this year we've seen how that has played out, which is not well for investors. So we are trying to address that concentration risk in autocracies by using freedom weighting instead of market cap weighting, because market capitalization weighting is how you end up with such a large allocation to China, because China is the second largest market in the world. So with freedom weighting, we give the freer countries a higher weight instead of the largest countries a higher weight. And so we are rewarding the more free countries, the countries that are promoting freedom, and the algorithm excludes the worst autocracies. So we have no China, no Russia, no Saudi Arabia, and the freer countries get a higher weight. So the highest weights right now are Taiwan, Chile, Poland, and South Korea. And then there's the frontier markets, which are very untradeable and illiquid and just extremely small. So you don't see a lot of products based on that. I think there's one ETF that's a frontier market ETF. There's one that's FMEM. And then other than that, I can't think of any. So we wanted to focus on the emerging market space because that's where most of the problem was with autocracies. And how do you define and screen out freedom? And I'm using air quotes, but people can't see that. So freedom, we are using third-party country-level quantitative metrics 
by the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute. And these guys are using third-party metrics by 100 network think tanks around the world. So we have two layers of third-party objectivity there. And they basically score 162 countries. We use the 26-country emerging markets universe. And we use the composite score. They have 76 different variables for each country. And these encompass the rights to personal freedoms and economic freedoms, or I break it down into civil, political, and economic freedoms. So civil freedoms are things like terrorism, torture, trafficking, women's rights. There's five proxies for women's rights, one of them being missing women, which captures the one-child policy type of issues. There's also FGM, women's rights to children after divorce, women's rights of movement, women's rights to inheritance. So those are the five women's rights proxies. In political freedoms, there's things like freedom of speech, media, expression, religion, assembly, and so forth. And then economic freedoms are things like taxation, business regulations, freedom to trade internationally, and soundness of monetary policy. So all of those things added together, we take the composite score, we run that score through our freedom weighting algorithm and turns those scores into country weights. So our strategy is 100% freedom weighted. It's not a freedom tilt. It's not an overlay. It's 100% freedom weighted. So it's a very high conviction type of strategy. One question I have is when you look at anything that's data oriented, math has no opinion. And I like that quite a bit. But the problem is it's not subjective or in the sense of when you look at that, and I'm thinking about this through the lens of ESG, where there's a lot of data out there and it's a lot of third-party data that arguably might be lower quality than one would like, but people use it and it controls a lot of the flow. The problem I find with data generally is you could arb it. There could be extra transparency and it could say, hey, there's a lot more political freedom than the numbers show or civil freedoms. Is there a Perth overlay of the subjectivity to say, oh, this actually doesn't look like a good number because it dictates so much of your portfolio construction? So first, to address that, there are some data that can be manipulated by governments. And we saw that recently with the World Bank and manipulating China data because they're funded by China. So yeah, that is an absolutely great point. So that's why we use data sources that don't take any government funding. So Cato and Fraser, neither of them take any government funding, not even US government funding. So they are fully independent. They're using 76 variables for this reason also, because sometimes you can have a law that doesn't jive with what actually happens on the ground. So Saudi Arabia, there's no law against women driving, but no women drive. So it's a custom. So that's also why they use so many variables. They tend to cancel each other out and cancel out inaccuracies. The other reason we use them is they are completely transparent in their methodology. So you can literally look up their methodology online anytime, which is different from Freedom House. Freedom House is a committee. And we use Freedom House also for one rule, but we don't use them as our main data source. We have a freedom decline momentum rule where if a country declines too quickly in any given year on the freedom house scale, then that's when we kick it out of the index. Turkey triggered that rule in 2018. And the reason why we use freedom house for that one is because they're a committee. They're not a transparent methodology, which means they can act faster almost immediately. So when freedom declines, it's something that you have to catch quickly because the declines are much faster than increases. So we use freedom house for that rule, but they're not a transparent methodology. They are a black box committee. So we try to keep it transparent using a lot of third parties for maximum objectivity. And as far as I'm concerned, my subjective opinion doesn't matter at all. So my personal opinion does not factor into this at all. So I'm able to keep that third-party objectivity, which is what I can control. 
So it's been a couple of years now. I remember we first connected back in early 2019 as you've launched this. You had mentioned that to start this all, you needed an anchor investor or someone to seed it. I'd love to have you share the story of the cold call that changed it all, because I love that story quite a bit in terms of how this all started for you. In the beginning, you do need a first investor, a first seed investor in a product like this. It would help if that investor is somewhat well-known as well. When I first started this, when I left Fidelity and started doing this full-time, I called Research Affiliates. Research Affiliates is the world's largest non-cap-weighted indexer. They use fundamental indexing, which looks at the fundamentals of a company rather than the size to weight and allocate in the index. I believe they currently have 170 billion in assets attached to their indexes. So (laughs) I called them and I actually used to work on the same street when they used to be in Pasadena. And I was at Fidelity in Pasadena. I used to stalk their building because I was such a fan of what they were doing. (laughs) So I called them and I said, hey, you guys are doing non-cap weighted indexing. I want to do non-cap weighted indexing. So they're fundamental weighted and I want to do freedom weighted. And I was like, hey, why don't we partner together? And they were like, no, please go away. (laughs) Thank you. So they weren't interested. So that first year, I just tried to learn as much as I can about the ETF ecosystem. So I went to Inside ETFs in Florida, which is at the time the biggest ETF conference in the world. And at that conference, I met a person who was a portfolio manager in Tennessee, who was the CFA Society president, who asked me to go speak at this tiny CFA society in Tennessee. So I did that. They ended up recommending me for a bigger society in Tampa after I gave a talk there about China and emerging markets. Tennessee was like 20 people in the room. Tampa was like 300 people in the room. Forecast dinners, my first year doing this. It was me, guy named David Kotak, BlackRock, and Morningstar on this panel. So after the panel, it went fine. And after the panel, David Kotak invited me to this thing called Camp Kotak. And this is a thing where 50 economists and finance people go fishing in the woods in Maine, almost in Canada, with no Wi-Fi for four days. And I was like, who does this? So at the time, I was working with Christian Magoon at Amplify, and he said, you should go. You can meet Barry Ritholtz, who runs the (laughs) Masters in Business podcast. I was like, okay, great. So I go. And on my way there, I call the seaplane company because you can take a seaplane to get into the campsite. I was like, hey, is it too late to get a seaplane for today? I'm coming in from LaGuardia right now. And they were like, no, you can share with Rob Arnott. I was like, what? Rob Arnott is the chairman of Research Affiliates, the company that I stalked and always wanted to work with. And so they were like, yeah, just intercept him at the airport. Here's American Airlines flight number, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay. So I intercept Rob Arnott at the airport. And I'm like, hey, did they tell you that we were going to be riding together? And he was like, yeah. And so <laughs> we rode together in the seaplane to camp. We fished together with everybody else for the four days. And I tell him the idea and he loves it. He's a very well-known libertarian. He loves freedom and all its benefits he believes in. And so he loved the idea. And I said, hey, since you like the idea, why don't you jump on a call with me? I'm trying to convince these people to invest. He's like, sure. So he jumps on a call with me. I'm trying to convince these other people to be the seed investors. The other people declined to seed. And then Rob writes me an email and said, hey, I'll put in a million. So he became the first seed investor. And this was before we had the index in its current form, before we had the fund, years before. And then over the time, his investment grew. And now he's a owner in the company as well. He's 10% owner in the company. So that was not something I could have orchestrated. And Rob doesn't even go to that camp every year. He's never gone back since. This was 2016. Before that, he was there seven years prior. He was only there because he lost a bet to Barry Ritholtz, and he was there to pay his bet. So that's the only reason he was there that year. The fact that I was invited that same year 
and got to meet him there after failing to convince his company to work with me previously. These are not things that I could have orchestrated. And so that's just one of many, many stories I could tell about how I realized this thing is bigger than me and that we just have to be willing to do the work and to be in position to do it. And things will happen as they are meant to. So all you can see is the next step. You don't see all these surprises of how things are going to work out when you start something new. One of my favorite stories and moments and environments that have such a serendipitous component to it of just sheer luck. What I love about that is how transformative it was for you in launching the ETF. But also, to your point, you can only focus on the next steps, but you have to be prepared when presented this lucky moment, right? Like who could say however long you had in the seaplane with him to then just pitch this amazing index that didn't exist. That's just something you can't plan. But gosh, when you're presented that opportunity, you're ready for it. This is something that needed to exist. People care about the things that are happening in in these emerging markets. And a lot of investors don't want to invest in a way that funds dictatorships. And so there's a lot of things that I didn't make happen that just happened. And I just positioned ourselves to create something that allowed people to express these values in their emerging markets allocations. But I really can't take credit for the way it's come together. Well, I'm going to give you credit because you sound very humble, but just literally the idea that you started this several years ago, and now to your point, 2020 and 2021 really amplified a lot of questions, issues concerning a lot of social movements, and then also with China and the geopolitical headlines that we've seen. How has this year's experience with what China has done with the markets and also what Freedom has built with ETF? I'd love to hear your opinion on how 2020 amplified your efforts at the business side. So 2020 was the pandemic. We underperformed the drawdown because we had no China and China outperformed the world in the drawdown. We can discuss how they did that, but I think that's pretty clear. And then we always had a thesis that freer countries would outperform in a recovery situation. We got to test that last year. And I'm happy to say they did outperform. So they outperformed broad emerging markets ex-China. So it wasn't even just China and emerging markets ESG as well. So the recovery, we strongly outperformed all of those other types of emerging market strategies. And then end of 2020 and 2021 so far, China went on a rampage against private businesses. <laughs> so this is economic freedom at its core. China has been an amazing growth story in the past 30 and 40 years because of an increase in freedom levels. So they increased from abysmal policies under Mao to an improvement to not so bad policies. And that slight opening up in economic freedom allowed for this economic miracle to basically happen there. And millions of people lifted themselves up out of poverty due to this. And now we see that pendulum swinging the other way where the government is going back to very Maoish rhetoric and buzzwords like common prosperity. The crackdown started, I would say, with Jack Ma disappearing after his speech in the Ant Financial IPO, biggest in the world it would have been, basically getting killed. So after that happened, all the tech entrepreneurs went silent and started pledging compliance and making donations to common prosperity types of projects. And then a lot of them actually stepped down. So we saw this parade of tech entrepreneurs stepping down. And also after Didi happened, they scrapped their own IPOs before the government even said anything. So we saw the crackdown on tech. We also saw the crackdown on education companies by decree, government came in on a Friday night and said, hey, you guys are now all nonprofits. These were very profitable companies previously. And overnight, they had to become nonprofits. And now we're seeing that may be reversed at some point. So it's all depending on what the government says. This is not a market where you compete by providing the best value. 
It's a market where the government dictates who gets access to the market, who gets to be a for-profit or non-profit company. Every aspect of your business is controlled by the government. And that kind of causes a snowball effect in the US in the asset management industry as well, because all the biggest asset managers like iShares, Goldman, Citi, JP Morgan, they're all trying to get access to the Chinese wealth management market because there's a huge aging population there. It's kind of like when the boomers retired here in the US, it was a huge deal for us. And that's a very difficult thing to turn down that promise of access, because this is a market where if the government grants you access, you're golden. You're not even going to have competitors because they're not going to let anyone compete with a better product or better value or more innovation because they control the market. So all of the asset managers are going to tell you to keep investing in China, that it's a great place to invest. It's still going to be a growth story, even though, in my opinion, that growth story is a story of the past. But they can't say that because if they say that, the government won't like it and won't grant them access. So it just becomes this endless cycle of asset managers having to say nice things about China so that they would be granted access. And the people who suffer for it are the investors. It's been over two years now since you've created it. And I'm sure there's a lot of failures and growth, but I'd love to hear some things that you've learned and insights you've gleaned from the past two plus years of building this out. One thing I've really enjoyed about this is having partners. I partnered with Alpha Architect. Now it's called ETF Architect. I had to convince them to go into this business of white labeling other people's funds and now they're doing it for ARC. So I'd say it's been very successful for them. But I love having partners in this because as a single mom myself, you're a mom, you know we can't do this alone. And so I think at the time when I first tried to convince Wes, CEO of Alpha Architect, to do this, he told me to do it myself. And then he taught me how, basically. But I don't think he fully appreciated the mom aspect. And I think it's very difficult for guys to understand. And so that was crucial and that I'm not doing this alone, that I have people running the operations of the fund, making sure all the trades are done with accuracy. And these guys are like ninjas over there. They're, they're great. It's important to have the right partners. And for me, it was difficult to trust anybody. I had gone one and a half to two years of shopping the idea around and having no partners actually work out during that time. And so choosing your partners very wisely, but also just having partners is good. That said, you don't need that many. I have two LPs, Rob and Lee, who's a retired PIMCO, and he's very helpful as well. Bootstrapping a business is very interesting and fun. I would start a business after you've built some financial foundation. I was at Fidelity as a financial advisor for 10 years. I had some money saved up where I didn't have to pay myself a salary all this time. So that's extremely helpful. So I'm very fortunate to have had that experience so I think those things are important. Have some financial runway, have partners, but choose the right ones and not too many, but also just keeping your clients at the forefront, creating something that allows them to express what they want to express through their investments is the main thing. And as someone who wanted to go into a creative artistic field before finance, this for me is a form of expression. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. Love that. And when you think about growing freedom and growing life and liberty, the index itself, do you think about assets? Do you think about conceptually what the mission is? How do you think about growing it? And what's the mission there? So right now it's about 110 million in assets. So the next step would be 120. That's how I think of it. And I'm literally just doing the things today that will help us get there. The biggest thing for me is our current clients, especially the ones that were there from day one. You never forget the people who supported you, who believed in the strategy, 
when it was 5 million, 10 million, or even pre-launch. So those are the people that I mainly work for. And then the next set of constituency I have would be the people that haven't heard about it yet that want to invest this way to make sure that they somehow hear about it and know about it. That's my next thing. Well, I'll definitely link your website and also the information on freedom. Our professional worlds overlap quite a bit in terms of the folks I deal with. They want a lot more impact and want to be able to vote with their dollars. It's interesting. One investor I spoke with, they had mentioned how with food, we're doing this now with health and wellness in terms of looking at and scrubbing through where our food's coming from and where our clothes come from. But we haven't really scrubbed it in detail with where our markets or our investment decisions come from. And that's much larger in many ways. And so now we're starting to, but it's still in the early stages. And so I fully support what you're doing. I think it's so wonderful. I'll make sure to link more information so that people can find out more about it. Because a fair amount of my listeners are investors, not surprisingly, just given our business and where we work. So I definitely want to help grow that if I can. But if you don't mind, then I'll switch to questions I ask everyone on my show, starting with what or who inspires you? And I have a feeling I know what yours would be in the what category, but what or who inspires you? Some people that come to mind immediately are Bill Browder. Bill was a hedge fund manager in Russia during the time that they privatized everything and made a killing. He made so much money that the Russian government then stole his tax money. That money went to Putin and other oligarchs, and then he uncovered it and they killed his lawyer. So after that happened, he gave up the business and became a full-time human rights activist, now advocating the Magnitsky Act around the world. Magnitsky was his lawyer that they killed. His book is so good. I couldn't put it down. Red Notice. It's so good. It is so good. And he's coming out with another book next summer, I think. So he's definitely one of my heroes. The protesters in Hong Kong gave up their lives and futures to stand up for freedom. So definitely not finance people, but still my heroes. Just people standing up for freedom at some cost to their own well-being or financial situation. Those tend to be who I look up to. Did you have a mentor or a role model? Rob is one. Wes is one. So Rob are not Wes Gray. I would consider mentors and role models. You've built a tremendous business. You've built a tremendous platform in mindset. And the mindshare you have now really has me thinking about the weightings of a lot of things and the metrics going into it. What are you most proud of? The thing I'm most proud of is bringing something to market that didn't exist before. We launched this to test the market for freedom as an investment metric, which has never been done before. And whether or not it succeeded, I would have been happy with that. I literally would have been happy if we just broke even and the fund could sustain itself. That would have been a great surprise to me. And now that it's actually in profitable category, everything beyond this is just icing on the cake. So literally, I'm proud of what we've done and the investors who helped us get here. Your story of building a business and certainly building this ETF, I'm sure has a lot of growth in that. But can you share one of your most impactful growth moments and or failure moments? Dealing with criticism is something that I had to learn because at Fidelity, you're doing very robotic stuff. So there's really never any criticism because you're doing stuff that's been approved by 10 people up the chain. And if anybody criticized, you're like, okay, we'll take it up with Yuri and Timur or whatever, you know? So it wasn't really your own thing, first of all, and it was approved 10 times over before you could even present it to anyone. And it's a very corporate culture. So you weren't really exposed to criticism because you weren't on social media and things like that. So in running my own business and being very active on social media, on Twitter, especially the biggest hell site of social media. Twitter's subtitle literally is the fastest critical feedback loop you can get. If you want 10 pieces of criticism, go on Twitter. When we first launched, 
we had some criticism out of Hong Kong, Chinese investors, of course, offended that we didn't include China in this, but also they had a really good point. And because it came from people who presented it in a, in a very non-constructive way, I didn't take it very well. And I wish I could go back and take it better and just say thank you, because those guys did us a huge favor. We had a company in the fund when we first launched called Naspers, and it was in South Africa because it's South Africa domiciled. It's included when we have a South Africa allocation. But Naspers invested in Tencent and their Tencent investment was so successful that it took over the entire market cap of Naspers. And so the criticism was, why is Naspers in there if you have, quote, no China? And that was very valid. And we ended up, because we can't just exclude one company, it has to be a rule across the board, systematic. So we created a rule at the following year's rebalance that said, if a company, 80% or more of its assets are made up of the stock of another company in an excluded country, then it's excluded. And that rule is applied across the board to all the holdings. And it only affected Naspers. And I think that made a lot of sense. And if they hadn't come out with that criticism, of course, the way they did it, I don't appreciate, but I so appreciate that criticism because it helped us get better and it helped our investors to not have that exposure. So I think that was something I had to learn. Not a fun lesson, but I'm glad it happened. My husband and I always say it's hard to get feedback and then high quality feedback. It's just hard to do. And then also, I think equally important is how you receive that feedback, whether it's constructive or not, because it is hard to get. And so if someone goes out of the way to tell you, but having said that, if you go on the FinTwit community, there's a lot of feedback. And I don't know if it's truly constructive or not. Any other story that you'd like to share in terms of growth and or failure? I think currently what I'm learning, once we hit 100 million, I got super exhausted. And I have a executive coach who at this point I hadn't talked to in three years. And I called him and I was like, dude, I am dead. And he's like, this is normal. Once you hit hundred million, you let go of your adrenaline. <laughs> I was like, what? And he was like, you need to walk outside 45 minutes each day. I was like, what? <laughs> so apparently if you're going nonstop for a long time and then you hit a milestone, you can actually quote unquote, let go of adrenaline, become super exhausted, which is what happened to me. And so I'm trying to get my outside time now. I did take a week off last week, so I do feel much better. So it's important to rest. It's important to take breaks. We talked a little bit about sleep before the call, and it is important to sleep, even if it's not a regular schedule, which very few entrepreneurs have. One of my mentors, Wes, told me one time, if you feel like being a cat, be a cat. So act like a cat if you have to. So I think that's something I'm learning now as we grow. There's one interview I listened to where a person who was hiring, he said there's a few categories of who they hire and why. And one was athletes, just given their drive and commitment to excellence and their intensity. The other is veterans because they're very structured, process-oriented, and can execute plans well. And the third category, and I'm biased, but I think it's the best one, is working moms. Because you just get shit done. Here's all the things you have to do and then all the toothpaste and toilet paper you have to buy. By the way, you're solving an ETF problem with a lot of sensitivities in geopolitical headlines. Oh, that's just a small little thing in addition to raising a daughter by yourself. So it is a lot. And I really commend people who include the idea that you're running this amazing business, but also you have to run yourself first because the business and the family and the social side don't get done without focusing on Perth first and Yin first. And so I think it's really important to highlight and not many executives do that. So thank you for sharing. Last question is, you had mentioned this amazing story about sharing a seaplane with Rob or not in this most serendipitous way and how the pandemic really lifted a lot of this focus on what the Freedom Index does. 
How do you think about luck in life? Good luck, bad luck, but how much impact did luck have on your life? Okay, I'm just going to be completely transparent here. I believe in the concept of luck, what most people call luck, but I actually think that there's such thing as a grand design in everything. So I saw a YouTube of Andrea Bocelli. I watch random YouTubes. And so I was watching Andrea Bocelli um, singing with, uh, what's her name? Kelly something or other. And then I saw another one of him talking about his faith. And he was speaking in Italian. The translation was, my success is a road accident. There is a grand design. And I think the translation was wrong. I think what he was actually saying was, my success is not a road accident. So I could be completely wrong. He could be saying the opposite thing, but that's what I got out of it. And that's what I believe. I think that every single person has a unique design to us and we have a unique ability to affect the world in a unique way. And I think that's why freedom is important because nobody else can tell us where we can make the most impact or what we should do with our lives, with the talents or gifts or whatever, even your flaws, the package that you were given. Government can't tell me, my parents can't tell me that. You are your own person. And that's what I tell my child. You are your own person. Because every person has unique abilities and unique potential. And so a lot of that is serendipitous when it comes together. But I don't think that it was a road accident. I think there was a grand design to it. Love that. Last question. What's next for Perth Toll? I have no idea. (laughs) I literally only see the next step. So people are asking for additional products and different asset classes in different regions of the world. I don't know what's going to come next. There's so many options. At this time, do not have enough direction to say with confidence, this is the next fund or idea. I'm excited about the options, currently sifting through them with our partners. So we'll see. But currently, I can confidently say I have no idea. I love the honesty. Well, where can people find out more about you and also what you're working on? Yeah. So the fund site is freedometfs.com and index site is lifeandlibertyindexes.com. And I'm on Twitter at Perth underscore toll. Perth, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.